This is a Broad Pods production. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Here for more. Hello and welcome to Broad Radio. I'm Joe Stanley and my co-host today is Zoe Daniel. Hi there, Zoe. Hey, Joe. Well, first up, we have to acknowledge that pretty much the world has ended because Facebook is down. So we are broadcasting on YouTube today and that's and Twitch, which you and I don't even know what Twitch is, but we're broadcasting on it. <laughs> Perhaps someone can send us a, a message on YouTube to tell us what Twitch is so that we understand <laughs> where we are in the world, Joe. We're not on Facebook. I don't know where we are. That's right. Do we even exist? Does the world exist when Facebook isn't isn't up and up and about? So um, we do encourage you if you're on YouTube, share uh, that you're joining us because it'd be nice to know. But we're gonna uh, we will. We will stream this particular episode on Facebook when it's up and about. It is coincidental and very fortuitous, actually, Zoe, because today we are speaking with a multimedia designer whose name is Laura Summers. She is a co-host on Triple R Bite Intuit. And, you know, she sent us a bunch of stuff about the sorts of things that she can talk about and none of it made sense to me. How are you with technology? Um, Once I've learnt it, I can do it, but I don't think my way through it. Put it that way. It's just rote learning. Press that button, plug that in there, yeah. all those sorts of things. I'm good with that. Yeah. If one, when there's a problem, <laughs> that's a problem. No, no, totally. My daughter says that she can never move out because I wouldn't be able to change the channel on the TV because I can't <laughs> work that so uh yeah we're going to be speaking with laura about ai and i'm going to ask her am i dumb to not care about security because on the whole i've just sort of put my head in the sand but we did feel it was time to maybe educate ourselves a little more on this day when facebook is down what does that even mean for the world is it possible that facebook has been hacked who knows We can only assume. Let's see. I, I'm curious to see what she has to say. I bet she has a more informed view about it than we do. Oh, 100% guaranteed on that one. <laughs> also today joining us, we have comedian and host of ABC TV's Chopsticks or Fork, Jennifer Wong. I love this show. Um, I have been deep diving a lot of live streaming on my laptop and this has been one of my favourite discoveries where they go into country Australia and discover Chinese restaurants all around our beautiful country. And oh my God. I want some lemon chicken. <laughs> it's all I can think about, Zoe. <laughs> I say bring on the dumplings. Yes, yes. <laughs> so Jen will be joining us later on. And first up, and I cannot wait for this, president of this year's AFL Premiers, the Melbourne Football Club, Kate Roffey, is going to be joining us. So if you are watching us on YouTube, it would be great if you subscribed and of course share us your comments we love that and you can catch up on this episode and all of these other episodes in the past that we've done on our podcast broad radio on the go as well they never ever they never go down the podcasts they're always available don't rely on facebook um while we're giving you updates i've got an exciting update on broad radio and that is this is our last day in this particular studio that you can see 
around me, we are moving into some new digs at Castaway Studios. And so that means next week's show is not going to be coming to you live. We will be sharing some of our favourite moments of broad radio over the last... uh, Oh my gosh, Zoe, since January, 10 months, nine months, I can't, what is time? Um, Zoe, I wanted to mention, I'm not a cricket fan. Are you a cricket fan? Uh, yes, I am. You That's know, good. some of my best childhood memories are of sitting with my dad and watching cricket and especially in that era, I mean, I'm showing my age, but Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh, the Chapel Brothers, that sort of time and then when the one day internationals started when I was a bit older in my late teens we used to sort of sit there in the evening and and watch it when I was growing up in Hobart so definitely developed a taste for cricket used to go to Belrive Oval and watch the blokes play so um, as you allude to Joe it's really nice to see the Aussie women over the last few years gaining some real prominence in this area and of course they played a test uh, against India in the last few days. Yes and while I don't know anything about cricket I know when history is made and I believe that history was made on Saturday when Elise Perry became the first Australian man or woman to claim 300 wickets and score 5,000 runs at the international level. What a what an extraordinary sports person she is. She is. And, you know, not only a cricketer, I mean, Elise Perry was an elite soccer star uh, before she decided to go with cricket. So she is just one of those talented people where if you put a ball near her of any size or shape, (laughs) she'll be able to do something with it. And it's funny, Joe. I was reading that actually Carlton considered trying to lure Elise Perry to be a sort of talent coach for their AFL women's team with the idea that they would eventually um, interest her in the game to the extent that she could play in the AFLW because her kicking technique apparently is absolutely perfect. So, you know, this is a woman who is, as you say, a superstar in the sport that she eventually chose to pursue but could no doubt have been a, a superstar in several sports and, and perhaps can transition to a different sport once she's decided, oh, I've had enough of cricket. Don't yeah, it's, that's amazing. And I saw, um, you know, there was like a, I think a top 10 or top 15 best, you know, cricketers sort of history. Um, and she's like at 10 or 11 or 12 or something and above her, of course, are all men. And I thought, mm. but even just to be there is harder for her because she would have had less opportunity to play being a woman. Yeah, of course, because when you think, um, you know, this is something that's changed a lot in women's sport in Australia, even in the last 10 to 15 years, isn't it? I mean, you know, when I was growing up, there was no opportunity for a girl to play cricket. There was no opportunity even for a girl to play soccer, let alone footy. You know, basically we were channeled into softball and netball. They were the options mm. that I had when, when I was a kid. You know, my father played AFL football, as you know. So if that had been an option for me, I would have loved to have played Aussie rules so it's just they do have to work harder the women because they haven't had that sort of cultural grounding in being able to play these sports. But then that sort of makes it even more awesome when you see someone like Elise Perry who is just so innately talented who's been able to take this on uh, to such an extent. And the other thing that people say about her is that she's just a wonderful, humble person as well. Um and that, you know, she she brings so much leadership to that team as well as being hugely talented. Unfortunately, they didn't win the test. It ended mm. up being a draw. Um, but still, you know, I think the other thing that's worth noting, Joe, is that of her 250 internationals, only nine have been test matches. And that's because the women don't get the opportunity to play tests. Most of their games are uh, one-dayers. Um, and that's that's kind of a shame. Like mm. it's a bit of a missing piece that obviously needs to be built out in the women's cricket world. Well, amazing. We're so, so thrilling to see someone like Elise Perry and the joy that she takes to the field. And, yeah, I, I would love to see her play soccer or anything, to be honest. And I'm, I'm an AFL girl, so um, I love it when uh, you see cross codes 
just extraordinary because I can't even catch a ball. <laughs> I'm terrified of balls. So people who are able to play anything that they pick up, oh, it astounds me. Um, love it so much. Um, well, well, while we're on awesome sporting wins and groundbreaking moments for women, let's welcome our first guest. She is the president of the Melbourne Football Club, which only two weekends ago won the AFL Grand Final after 57 long years. She's also been CEO and senior executive across many different organisations, and we're thrilled to have her on Broad Radio. Hello there, Kate Roffey. Good morning. How are you? Oh, well, we're really great. Congratulations on Melbourne's win. Um, I know that it's been a really busy time for you, so thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, have you come down off cloud nine? Yeah, look, it's it's interesting. People keep asking and I, it's sort of, it, there's such a blur and there was so much work to do around media and, and just club things that it was sort of, um, hasn't really stopped in terms of that amount of work and getting back to club stuff. And I really haven't had time to just sit down and, I think assess the enormity of what the club has actually done and these, you know, wonderful group of people who work in the club, not just the players, but the, the staff under our CEO, Gary Perch, um, the coaches and all our supporters and everyone. It's just such a huge thing. I wasn't here in Melbourne, but they tell me that the feeling here in Melbourne was quite extraordinary, even if you weren't a Melbourne Football Club supporter. Um, just the the feeling that it gave everybody for a, a team that has done it tough all year. I mean, you know, we've been travelling, the, the players have been away from their families for uh, more than a month by the time we actually got back home. And it, it's just, it's such an extraordinary story, really. I feel like I, I wrote a script um, for a television movie and then the next time I sort of saw it, I was watching it on the big screen. Wow. <laughs> Kate, it was so lovely on grand final morning. I went for a run. It was a beautiful morning in Melbourne. And it, it actually it almost gave me a tear to run around the streets and see people walking their dogs, wearing Melbourne scarves and walking around with babies in prams with their Melbourne beanies on and so many houses with admittedly bulldogs and melbourne flags and and scarves and decorations you know there were, there were street wars with <laughs> with people um you know having a bit of fun with that and given that the game wasn't here and the reasons behind that i i sort of i felt it firstly sad but also really heartwarming in many ways that melburnians you know really do see this as their game and that even though the game wasn't here it was too heartland melbourne teams from de very different demographics of the city and they really embraced it um and i i just you know i wanted to make a comment that it was so lovely to see especially in, after this year that we've had or two years now um, i'm curious whether you know you think you're headed for a bit of a, a sort of um tiger's pattern here now that you've broken that nexus and won the premiership whether you think Melbourne can continue down this path and we might see a series of flags. Yeah, look, I'd love to, I'd love to think so. It's, I mean, we have an extraordinarily deep list and that's something that Melbourne hasn't had for a very long time. Uh, we have had the, the benefit of having the fabulous Darren Burgess, who's been our fitness coach for the last few seasons and really got the players unbelievably fit. I mean, we were fortunate that we had uh, Tomo at the start of the year had a, an ACL, he was out for the season, but really we didn't have uh, that many major injuries throughout the year, which is a testament to how, how well they've been prepared in the off season. So we, we're keeping that list together. We've got a really good culture and that's such a critical thing in the club. So many people have commented to me, uh, as you were just talking about the feeling around Melbourne, Zoe, so many people have said to me, um, the way the players spoke about it all being about the team and about the club and about our supporters and and I said, well, we don't tell them to say that. That's how we feel. So when you've got those things in place, then I think you are in a great position to set yourself up to continue to challenge over the years. But any one of those things, you can make a major dent in your tilt for a premiership, some you know, key injuries or COVID has just been extraordinarily difficult. I mean, we, we do have to just take our hats off to the AFL the way that they've managed to keep these seasons going for the last couple of years, it, it has just been extraordinarily difficult. Um, my, my team have been mid-air and I've got a text saying they're not going to Gold Coast anymore. They're being diverted to Canberra and they're coming back because we've got a COVID scare um, 
and we don't know whether we're going to play or not this weekend. And so those sorts of challenges have been continually thrown at the AFL and, and they've managed. So, you know, in this extraordinary season, we've we've won away from home. We absolutely, as you say, Zoe, love to come back. Can you imagine if we were playing at the MCG mm-hmm. for a premiership flag? It would just be <laughs> extraordinary. So we're certainly... You know, we've got one of those nice shiny cups and I can tell you that's quite an extraordinary feeling to be able to to hold that up uh, for the first time in 57 years. But, uh, yeah, definitely we'd like to come back and, and win one in front of our home crowd and our home ground here, the MCG. Kate, a lot has been said around, and I've been one of them, around the fact that uh, there are now three female presidents of AFL footy clubs and the last two grand finals, three of those four teams, have been with female presidents, Richmond, of course, with Peggy O'Neill, Western Bulldogs, um, with Kylie Watson-Wheeler, and now yourself with Melbourne Football Club. Is it a coincidence that the leadership is now (laughs) under three incredible women and that they are very well-performing teams? Yeah, look, I get asked this, is it a a female thing or is it it something else? First thing is they take a long time to actually get these, these teams and these clubs to to success, so it's it's certainly not just me. Um, and Peggy would be the first, and Kylie also to say we're links in a chain of people that have come before us. But I think the the major reflection is that this is good contemporary leadership and good contemporary governance. And I don't think that's necessarily a a male or a female thing. I think that's good uh, good governance. There is there is a difference, I think, just in the way that we approach um, approach interacting with our players or our coaches or our or our staff, and that's different for each of us. Um, Peggy and, and Kylie and I know each other well, and we all go about things differently. But I think it does. Uh, Daisy Pierce, I think people kept asking me, "What you know? What is it? What's going on? What have you done here?" And Daisy, in the commentary after after the match when we were down on the field, um, when I finally saw the replay about it three or four days after the game, she said, um, "Yeah, that's the president, Kate Roffey. She's had a very calming influence on the club." And I think that's probably what. To put it in a nutshell, I think Daisy summed up possibly what has has changed really at our club. Um, you know that last little bit. I'm a very calm person. I tend not to not to worry, not to get stressed, and I, I look at big challenges or obstacles, and I go, okay, well, it's just an obstacle. We can get over it. We can get around it. But there is a way to actually deal with it. And I think um, that's me personally, and that has made a uh, you know. A, change for our club that's a, a final piece of a puzzle um, that we've been working on for a long time it'll be different for Kylie and it'll be different for Peggy as it's be different for Luke Sayers at Carlton and it would be different for for Russell over at West Coast so we're, we're all different but I think um, you know four of the last five premierships have been won by female presidents now so there must be something in the water <laughs> I think it's remarkable it is, and there's been huge progress in other parts of the game too, obviously, not only with the AFLW, but you mentioned Daisy Pierce, you know, being part of the commentary team. We have other, you know, prominent female commentators now. You know, when I was growing up watching footy, that, that would have been uh, something that would not have happened. Like, it, it, it just was not even a figment of anyone's imagination, I don't think, that you'd have female commentators. But I'm wondering, Kate just how many barriers you still experience. I interviewed Tanya Hosh recently, the the AFL's Indigenous manager, who's an incredible woman as well, and I asked her, you know, do you ever have moments still in the boardroom or whatever where you just sort of go, gee, sort of rolling your eyes, thinking what what's going on here and she just laughed her head off and said well what do you think <laughs> of course you know it's still a battle do you, do you have those moments as well where you think gee there's a lot that still needs to shift oh absolutely Zoe. i mean i think that for any females um in first positions or or leadership positions you'll always have them so i was for example the, the first female chair of an organization that looked after shipping channels here in in Victoria, and you, you come across first, I was virtually the only female in that whole organisation at a senior level, in fact. And, and But it's one of the things I look at and I go, uh, you know, being a president of a football club is, is huge, particularly here in Victoria. I mean, it's you will never, ever do anything else like it in your life. It's, it's difficult to explain um, the nature of these roles. But when I, I was asked by my board to, to step up into the president's role, I knew that 
you know, 50% of it is being a president of an AFL club and 50% of it is being a female president of an AFL club. And I fully embrace that. I mean, that's really important to me. And, and seeing those obstacles, as I said, or seeing those barriers, to me, it's not something that I look at and go, I can't do it. I go, okay, well, we've got to chip away at this wall and actually make people understand that this is okay and this is going to be the future. I mean, we will see more female presidents. Peggy, um, one of the things that we spoke about when I was first appointed, and she said, I was really worried that I would finish my tenure as a president, a female president of a club, and there would be no other females here. And she said, no, I've got two. And to her, that was really important. But, you know, it's a, it's a sign of the changing times. We still need to get a lot better. I mean, we don't have a, a female CEO. There's been very few in professional sport. Um, you just mentioning Cricket previously, um, the A-League have had um, Eugenie Buckley's been up there at, at Brisbane. We had Rachel in the NRL, but there's just, there aren't many women coming through there. And I think you can see a sort of balance when you talk about, is it a, is it a women's thing or what's happening with these AFL clubs? It's bringing it certainly a different perspective and balance. And people are starting to look at it and go, not necessarily has to be a female, but a different approach, I think, is what we're seeing in that contemporary governance and compassionate leadership. And I think this is something we've seen in COVID as we talk about um, what has changed a lot. We are becoming compassionate leaders as opposed to the old fashioned dictatorial style leaders. Uh, I think that's something I've seen a lot through the COVID impact in the last couple of years. Are you aware, Kate, of the magnitude for other women and girls who see someone such as yourself and Peggy, I, I have actually asked Peggy this a while ago as well, that, that, you know, there's great significance for everybody else and all the women and girls who, who want to see trailblazers like you. Do you are you aware of that magnitude? Not really. I think um, I just go about my job. Sometimes I forget I'm even the president of an AFL club and they'll go, oh, Kate Robbie <laughs> president. I go, oh, that's me. Um, because I go about my I go about my business and, you know, I try to do my job as, as best I can and, you know, make as, as few mistakes as I can. But that's certainly, um, you know, bound to happen as I as I go along. So I just do my do my bit. Um, and then I, you know, I get an extraordinary number of, you know, wonderful messages from people I do and people I don't know just saying thank you or you know, that um, you're inspiring them to do something different. And at one game, a, a dad came up with his um, 11 year old daughter and he stopped me as I was walking around the concourse and he said, um, he said, hi Kate, this is my uh, young daughter. She's seen you speak, I think it was on a podcast or something. And she wanted to come up and say hello because um, you've inspired her to do something good. And when you get a little bit of feedback like, like that, you not necessarily think how much impact you might be having, but you think whatever trouble I have or however difficult my day might seem, um, to have someone who feels that way, then you know, all of those challenges and obstacles are certainly worth worth the effort because I always say don't don't do what I've done, do more than do more than I do. I'll get us as far as I can, you know, chipping down this road and, and clearing the weeds. But um, for the people coming after me, um, young men, young women, you know, do more. Um, I'll, I'll clear the path as far as I can. Um, then it's up to you to as all the great women before me have chipped away at the path um, to make it easier for me, then, you know, I'll, I'll chip away as much as I can to make it easier for them to get further forward. Do you get much blowback, Kate? Uh, there was an article, and, you know, H pointed out by Steve Price, who was sort of arguing that it, we shouldn't be taking an aggressive stance on gender equality. Um, his view was that we should be having a politely argued discussion about it. So that, that's great advice. Thanks, Steve. Um, but it just occurred to me that from your perspective, it might be a hard road to hoe sometimes. And how do you manage that that backswing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's you. I always say you, it, as soon as you stand up and you, you know, try to lead in some way or, or you know, march your troops to the top of the hill, you get a massive big target on your back and people, you know, like to have a ping at it. You, for every, you know, positive comment you get, occasionally through comes the Steve Price sort of, um, you know, I, I, that was way back when I started, so I, I didn't read it. Someone sent me the article and it was something like I should focus on football mm. um, instead of the gender wars. Yeah. Well, Steve, I think I'm doing, you know, I'm a female, I can multitask. So <laughs> I, think I've done, um, I think I've done pretty well with um, both there, the female element 
Melbourne doesn't seem to be suffering and certainly our football side of things um, has done nothing but improve. So, you know, you'll always get those things and it's like being in politics or anything else. If you don't want the target on your back, don't take the job. So that's just part and parcel of, of um, yeah, having these roles. Like I said, things all things are great at the moment. Things will go wrong and then, you know, I get to stand up and and front the media and represent the club in the best of times now. I'm sure there'll be bad times when I have to stand up and front it. That's just part of the that's part of the job. You you represent your club in the good times, you represent your club in the in the bad times and you know, that's just the way you do it. Like I said, if you don't wanna you don't wanna get smacked with the the media stick every so often, then certainly don't stand up there holding the cup on the the stage um, as the premiership president. Um you mentioned uh, shipping just before, Kate, and uh, one of the most fascinating conversations I've had on the phone was when you and I spoke mm. maybe a year ago and you were telling me about shipping in Melbourne and I was like, my God, the, the things you know. I am so fascinated. Um, and so your life obviously at Melbourne is voluntary and you have a whole massive career outside of that and, you you know, it's shipping and it's trains and you're at City of Wyndham doing incredible things there. Um, what is something in your career and your working day that lights you up the most? Uh, I think for me it's this thing of um, if there's the biggest challenge, so as you just mentioned, uh, Joe, we're um, aiming to build the Australia's first privately owned rectangular stadium using something we call value, value capture, which is a commercial uh, funding style model. It hasn't been done before, so I look at that and go, fantastic, let's give this a crack. Other people look at it and go, this is just ridiculous, don't even bother. So it's those sorts of things that are the unknown, uncharted territory. I, I'm not a, a worker or a CEO or um, a staff member who's happy to just kick a tin down the road. I want to always do something different. So it's those things that everyone else would just go, this is too big, this is just too much of a of a challenge. I mean, I've got a, a very puzzly sort of mind in that I'll, you know, if my watch stops working, I'll pull it apart and see what's gone wrong and put it back together so it works again. So I've always been a, sort of a person who likes to work out um, intricate puzzles and untangle things. So I just look at each of those things as another opportunity to actually say, don't tell me no, we, we'll find a way to do it. We've just got to stick to the to the task. So I think those are the things that really excite me and get me up in the morning, not the things that, oh, I've got to do my budget again or I've got to do my, um, fill in my reports for HR or whatever. Those sorts of things don't really get me that excited. But the unknown and the unusual and the uncharted territory is, I should have been, you know, an explorer back in the day like Christopher Columbus or James Cook or something like that, I think. But uh, no, so the, the unknown really, you know, a lot of people fear it. I just go, great, here's, here, you know, how exciting, something that someone hasn't done before. It's, you know, it gets me up, it gets me fascinated and wakes me up in the morning. Wow, that's so that's so interesting because at the moment all we hear is how we're terrified of the unknown and that's the thing that's causing us so much anxiety. But you embrace it. I love that. Absolutely. I mean, out of COVID, it's come all sorts of things. That, I mean, I can do, uh, you know, five or six talks a day before you could do one or two because you just couldn't make your way physically to, to things. I could work for a company in Paris um, online. So there's, there's all sorts of different things. Yes, it's unknown, but embrace. You know, we don't have a choice. COVID, you don't get to opt out of COVID. So it is as it is. Let's actually see what we can do with it and change the way we operate so that we're better when we come through this at the... At the other, because we will come through it. We're resilient. You know, the human race is a very resilient, resilient group of people. So we'll get through it, and you know, out of it will come things that we never expected to, to come out of it. Awesome, Kate Roffey. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's just been a delight to speak with you on Broad Radio. Thank you. Thanks, everyone out there, and go well. Yes, you too. <laughs> we'll have more Broad Radio after this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, Zoe, at the top of the show, we did establish that you and I are not technologically uh, connected or particularly savvy, um, but... But as they say, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And if technology is our enemy, well, perhaps we should learn a little bit more about it rather than bury our heads in the sand. So we welcome to the show now multimedia designer and from Bite Intuit on 3RRR, Laura Summers. Hi there, Laura. Hey, hi. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you're joining us on a day when Facebook is down, which means the end of the world for so many people. (laughs) What's happened? How can such a giant just disappear (laughs) off the face of the internet? Oh, look, I think that's a question everyone's asking right now and we don't really have answers. Hey, like there's been um, some some news has come through saying they think it's a DNS issue. DNS is... um, domain name server and it's you might think of it like the phone book of the internet it's the thing that sort of tells the computers that are trying to connect to servers where to go and which servers they're connecting to so it sends all those bytes of data around the internet and without dns we don't have an internet um so yeah it's it's really been a bit of a disaster everything is down instagram is down facebook is down messenger um i i was reading a piece on ars technica saying that apparently there were reports um when the outage first started that Facebook employees couldn't use their key passes to get into the building to start to assess the problem itself. So that's pretty hilarious to think that like so many systems are consolidated and tied into that one thing that you couldn't even get into the building to start to assess the state of the damage. That's actually quite funny. Isn't there a geek in a basement somewhere who can fix it? <laughs> Gosh, don't we all wish we had that geek in the basement? It's like we all need we all need a wife and we all need a geek in the basement. Yes. But Laura, is it, is it possible that this is part of an elaborate conspiracy? I mean, we've seen this coverage around in, in the last week of the Facebook files. There was a Facebook whistleblower who's come out saying, you know, Facebook knows how much harm it's causing. It, it knows the flaws in its system, yet it doesn't do anything. And then Facebook disappears off the internet. I mean, it couldn't be any more perfect. Yeah, look, it's certainly good fodder for conspiracy theorists, say, like, there's a bunch of fun, um, ridiculous stuff floating around Reddit and Twitter. Um, I saw one that said that it was a convenient self-own that Facebook did it on purpose to basically avoid getting scrutiny from this um, whistleblower 60 Minutes interview that happened on Sunday night, I think. Um, And there's also people saying it was a hack. So it's some kind of retribution or retaliation for all of this bad behavior we've seen from Facebook over the past um, decade, I guess. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, look, it's 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 hard to know if there's much truth to any of that. There's also there's there's this um, uh, like dark web trove of Facebook data, which has been supposedly put up for auction. I think it's something like one point five billion records. But. It's, it's it's questionable whether there's A, actually any data there, and B, if there is, if it's anything other than just like scraping what's actually publicly available on Facebook. So it's there's a difference between like a, an actual data breach and scraping what's actually available and sort of publicly up already. Um, and so there's there's plenty of conspiracy going around, but I don't I wouldn't put too much stock in any of it, to be honest. What do you make of the, um, the Facebook files? I'm interested in how you read that in that, like I was I was saying to Joe earlier that I was in DC working as a correspondent when Mark Zuckerberg appeared before Congress. And this is, I don't know, it must be three years ago 
now. And, you know, so Facebook's had a lot of scrutiny for a long time about the sort of negative social impact that it's having, uh, privacy issues and misinformation and all those sorts of things. It, it continues to operate. People keep using it. Obviously, some people jumped off it, but a lot of people are still on it. Um, so we don't necessarily see anything changing despite all this negative information coming out. Do you, do you think the Facebook files will move the needle at all? Look, it's hard to say because Facebook has weathered so many, um, so many uh, like obvious problems already. You know, like if you think like if Cambridge Analytica and the obvious, like, you know, the, we know that we were hacked by Russians. We know that, um, you know, there was like very serious misinformation issues happening. That was a deliberate attempt to intervene on the U.S. electoral process back in 2016. And that didn't impact us. You know, like that didn't change the regulation that didn't cause Facebook to get broken up. So I, I would probably fall down the side of I'm a little bit um, cynical and a little bit dirty on this. I'm not I'm not really convinced that any kind of problem would cause Facebook to face real consequences. Um, but there have been whispers that there should be some kind of breakdown Facebook antitrust law coming from the U.S. government and that it might happen during Joe Biden's administration. So. Look, that would be probably the ideal outcome, but I don't know if it's going to happen. And they, they're going to have to build a very strong case. And it's um, it's it's unlike traditional antitrust law where you're talking about people wording prices, right? You're talking about people saying, well, you know, you're here at my spa and there's nowhere else to eat. So I'm going to charge you a hundred bucks for, you know, a coffee. And it's like, of course, that's 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 a form of monopoly. It's it's not OK. Um, that's not actually the case with Facebook because people don't pay for the product. So you have to find an alternate way of showing the harms and measuring those harms and saying that that's, that's not okay. Um, but certainly with this current issue of the whole, essentially internet, it feels like going down, it's a strong, it's a strong argument that the consolidation of these services, like all of these apps that used to be separate companies, like Instagram was not always owned by Facebook, neither was, um, Neither was Oculus, neither was YouTube, neither was WhatsApp. So this all used to be hosted separately. And, and you, you could think of that as like a sort of, you know, greener forest with different kinds of trees. And now we're all the same forest with the one kind of tree. And as we can see, when something goes wrong, it impacts all these services. And it means that the overall ecosystem is much less resilient. So I think that in itself is a strong argument for breaking up Facebook and, and maybe like seeing a return to a smaller, more sustainable size of tech company. But it, it's certainly not going to happen overnight. If it does happen at all, it might take three years, five years. But one of the problems, and we, Zoe and I were talking about this earlier off the show, um, is that people like myself, I just keep using Facebook because I guess I don't really think about the harm. I don't think about what kind of data they are taking from me because I that's the that's the price I pay. I sign a deal with the devil and I use Facebook. I mean, we stream on Facebook every every week usually. <laughs> um, so we rely on Facebook for broad radio currently. Um, and to me, that's I, that's one of the reasons we wanted to get you on the show because I'm someone who I've just got my head in the sand. I don't even know what AI is. I keep reading that at some point it's going to take on the, over the world and we're all going to be destroyed by AI. I've seen the <laughs> Matrix. I know. <laughs> but you don't kind of... You know, we don't sort of engage with actually what it really means and how perhaps at risk we might be. Yeah, look, I, I probably come down on the side of it shouldn't be on individuals to know or to protect themselves, right? Like that's, that is the job of regulation. And I think it's a little bit unfair to point fingers at people and be like, oh, well, you should have gotten off Facebook if you didn't want this to happen to you. It's, it's in many ways the de facto platform of the internet. So it's like saying, just don't be on the internet, which is kind of patently ridiculous, right? Like you can't tell people to not participate in society or to not share their content. Um, and particularly when you talk about a social media platform, the issue is with the network effects. So if you move to some other platform where you know it might have much better ethics and it might be less of a problematic company, but you've only got 10 of your closest friends there, it doesn't really help produce work or, or get it out in the world, right? So mm. I'm look, certainly there are lots of things to know and there are ways to protect yourself. Like you can go into your Facebook settings, um, click like six times and turn off all of the um, privacy tracking things. So you can, you can make your account 
less public and you can make it harder for people to find mm. you and you no, can make no, sure that no, your no, public no, information no, no. why would i make my account less public that's mad <laughs> <laughs> i want the world well, to know everything about me that's yeah what's well, the point of it <laughs> but can this we... is the thing like that yeah the system isn't designed to help you an individual it's designed to help itself so yeah. it's, it, it doesn't have your interests in mind when it's thinking about how to make that stuff available well, probably that's one of the things we should go into it with our eyes wide open. It's not really for us. It's for them to make mm. a lot of money. Can we move away from Facebook and ask you, sure. the, the, one of the key reasons we wanted to talk to you was this notion of AI and it, what is it? And is it actually exi yeah. in existence now? And are we at risk? Great question. AI is a terrible term that is so overused and has so much um, what people in tech call namespace clashing, which is basically just means too many words that are or too many too many concepts that are loaded on the one word. Um, so AI people talk about it and they talk about the Terminator and they talk about her and you know like this idea of a consciousness that's in a computer and that's nothing like the tech we have today. The tech we have today is called narrow or weak AI and it basically is you can think of it like um, fancy pattern matching. That's that's kind of the simplest way I can describe it. It's not really like a consciousness. It doesn't have a sense of time, doesn't have a sense of memory. It doesn't know the difference between itself and the outside world. Um, it's just being shown a bunch of data and it's trying to match patterns. Um, so yeah, like the, the things, the thing that AI like is, is there for is helping recommendation systems know what to recommend next or trying to match you know, faces it's seen in the past to faces that it's being shown now. Um, but all of these systems, they don't generalize. So when we think about intelligence or consciousness, we think about this idea that you could learn something and then, you know, take that same concept to the next task that you have to do. Um, but to just kind of ground this, if you had a computer vision model and it was looking at faces and you're like, here's a face, here's a picture of me, does it match anything in the database? It could spit out and say, you know, strong match or weak match. But that same model couldn't tell the difference between a gorilla and a monkey or a cat and a dog, right? It doesn't, it doesn't generalize in any meaningful way. And it doesn't have any kind of sense of self to know what these things are that it's learning. It's just literally saying, I think this is similar to what I've seen in the past or not. Um, so we, we have this problem that we keep anthropomorphizing the machine and thinking it's much smarter and more, uh, you know, like human-like than it is. Whereas most of this technology is really quite straightforward at the core and quite dumb and can go wrong really easily. Um, I actually had some examples of ways it can go wrong if you want to hear. They're, they're sure. quite ridiculous. Will it terrify me? Will I have nightmares? Well, <laughs> I mean, it might help you feel like less terrified because it's okay. so silly, right? Like, yeah. I think that's, that's maybe useful to like kind of break down the marketing gloss and be like, well, look, actually, it's quite silly. Like, there's um there's a kind of apocryphal story about this, which is a, a model that was trying to learn the difference between a husky and a wolf. So like husky dogs and wolves, and they're pretty similar looking. So you can argue that might be a hard challenge even for some people. <laughs> um, but they, they fed it a bunch of images and it got really good really fast. And they're like, oh, wow, our model is so great. It's learning the difference between husky and wolf. And then they did this thing um, where they, they tried to determine what the model was looking at in the images. So what, features in the pictures it thought was of interest. And what it turned out was that the model had learned the difference between snow and no snow. So where where there were wolves, there was always snow in the background. And where there were not wolves, there was no snow in the background. And that was the only salient feature that that model had learned. So while they thought they had got this really subtle image problem solved, in fact, they had just like got it to learn snow or no snow. And that's that that kind of, it's called shortcut learning and that kind of like learning this feature that um, people didn't recognize was there in the data that they were feeding it. Um, that's a really common problem in most kinds of machine learning. So Laura, we talked about Facebook being for itself and not necessarily being for us. And so I'm therefore wondering about AI, is it good for us or not? Uh, I mean, are computers good for us? Is are our phones good for us? Like it's it's like you know yes and no. Of course, like it's 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 a bit of both. Um, I think AI has lots of potential. There's lots of amazing things it could be doing, but I think we have to we have to think deeply about 
what values we want to protect when we build technology. And we have to think about what what optimizations we're setting ourselves. Like, what are our goals? What do we want the tech to do for us? If we, if we purely accept other people's goals, we're gonna have to understand that they're probably not gonna be in our own best interests. So I think maybe the, the like long answer short is, it's on us to try and set some goals for ourselves and work out if we can use technology to reach those goals rather than just, you know, blindly accepting whatever is given to us, um, especially from big corporates like Facebook. So uh, just to wrap up, I need to then ask the question, is, uh, is Zoe's husband and myself, are we crazy in saying we will not have a Hey Google or Alexa in our house because we don't trust it? I'm 100% behind that decision. I, oh, I think of really? them as little surveillance robots that I, I won't have one in my house either. I'm. Did you oh. see there's a new Amazon dog? And it's it just looks, it, it walks around the house and like maps your house and sends all that data back to Amazon. Oh, like it's like inviting a, a little, yeah. It's I don't like, like that like, at all. No, I, me neither. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, I think like if it really solves a problem for you, it's probably like, you know, Go for it, I guess. Like, but I, I certainly don't. I don't think the problems it could solve for me outweigh the kind of creepiness of like essentially inviting a surveillance device into my home. I don't really like it. Oh, I feel so vindicated. I love it. I can't <laughs> wait to go out and tell the world I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, mm. thank you so much for uh, that very illuminating conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Broad Radio, talking inspo we love, info we need, and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday, 9am, Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2 a.m. existential crisis, <laughs> we've got you covered. Broad Radio, here for more. Well, Zoe, I have discovered a little gem on ABC iView that I absolutely love. It's called Chopsticks or Fork, in which the host travels the country discovering all of those beautiful Chinese restaurants that are the backbone of every country town. I love them. I'm mad for Chinese food. It's hosted by comedian Jennifer Wong and she joins us now. Hi, Jen. Hello. How are you? Oh, really great. Congratulations on your show. I know that uh, you probably shot it pre-COVID, did you? No, we actually shot it during COVID, which was a very difficult thing to do to hop into a place and then like leave before anything happened. We were in South Australia and left South Australia the night they went into lockdown. So it was just the gods were very kind to us. This film during COVID, it was very tight. It's such an amazing idea, Jen. And, you know, Joe referenced the fact that she grew up eating Chinese food in a country town, as did I. I'm from Launceston. And I grew up in an era where it was basically you went to the pub for a counter meal or you went to the Chinese restaurant for for dinner. And that was special occasion food. You know, it's a very different era, wasn't it, when, you know, totally. in the 70s and 80s, the idea of going out for dinner was a huge deal, whereas now, well, in the before times, before COVID, we'd sort of go out for dinner um, willy-nilly and not think anything of it. So for, on that basis, how big a cultural institution are these country town Chinese restaurants? It's incredible. And I think um, the reason why people have been so kind and lovely about this show is that it brings out a real sense of nostalgia for them. Like you said, Zoe, you know, it's often the first place that many people in country towns would have eaten outside their own home if it wasn't for the pub. You know, some of the country towns, um, it's not that the Chinese restaurant was the only Chinese town. Sometimes they were the only restaurant in town. So um, as a place for 
you know, 18th and engagement parties and birthday parties and that kind of thing. Um, there's such a sense of um, going to celebrate at these places as well as, you know, picking up a couple of dishes on the way home from swimming on a Tuesday night. Um, you know, we were in um, the Atherton Tablelands in Queensland and had stumbled upon a table where um, a guy in his late 20s was dining with his wife and his brother and his brother's partner and they'd grown up at this restaurant eating as kids but now they were celebrating a birthday and so they were getting the 39 dollar banquet menu um you know on a thursday night and just having a great time of it you know they had a newborn with them and you could just tell that this family is just going to keep going like generation after generation in the same way that the restaurants are often handed down from one generation to the next. So as much as it is about getting, you know, um, lemon chicken or honey prawns or that kind of thing, it's actually the place of it has a huge sense of heart and warmth for a lot of people. Oh, I just, there's so much about the show I really love. It really made me want to travel through Australia and mm. discover these beautiful towns. So you, you capture that beautifully but also the history of Chinese food in Australia. Like it's just generation after generation. And yes, for me, so I grew up suburban Melbourne, right? My grandparents were missionaries in China, right? Wow. Crazy. I know, that crazy. That is so right? interesting. I wonder what they ate. Well, <laughs> oh gosh, in the 20s and 30s, I don't know yeah. what they, I really don't know. <laughs> it was like, it was remote. It was remote, like, you know, country, I don't know what part yeah. of China, but um, but so I grew up, same as Zoe said, special occasion for birthdays. My grandparents would get Chinese food and it was such a treat because back then their only takeaway was fish and chips and Chinese food in the 80s. That was it, right? Mm -hmm. So Chinese yeah. food, so amazing with my grandparents. But you know what? I used to just cringe because they insisted on cooking their own rice. And I, they would not, <laughs> they would not buy so the rice. Really they're very Chinese, in my opinion, um, Joe. Um, I ordered some Thai food last night, and I also refused to pay four dollars fifty for the rice. So as soon as I ordered the food, I put the rice on my rice cooker. Um, they probably know that an Asian person has bought these two dishes because of the lack of jasmine rice in their order. So congratulations <laughs> to your fam. Hope you will pick up these same very extremely um, important to eat Chinese food when oh, you no. do take away. I've tried to introduce that to my family and my husband and daughter are like, how tired are you? Just get the rice off the menu. And I'm like, that's what my grandfather used to do. You'd always put the rice cooker on as you went and got the Chinese. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to admit that we do that in our house. We, we actually cook the rice. It is tragic. But, you know, if, you, if you've got big eating teenage children and you're going to spend like, $12 on rice, then how many kilos of rice can that buy you? <laughs> you know, that's that's right. probably you could practically buy you another dish. You know, you'd rather <laughs> spend that $12 on, you know, another portion of, um, I don't know, spring rolls or something. And I, I think yeah. it's time that we, you know, cognitive behavioural therapy change our language and thinking around this. Instead of Zoe saying, um, I have to admit, it should be a, a like, I never pay for rice. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's nothing to be ashamed of. It should be a badge of honor. So congratulations to everyone. Yeah. Oh yeah, we are we are the house that cooks our own rice. But Jen, you know, you mentioned Thai food and I lived in Thailand for several years and I'm always sort of interested when I go to a Thai restaurant in Australia how different the Thai restaurant food here is to eating Thai food in, in Thailand. And I'm just wondering how how much Chinese food has kind of hybridised over the years and, and also how much those restaurants have changed since those times in the 70s and 80s when Joe and I were kids and we were going for yeah. our birthday to the Chinese restaurant. Is the food yeah. the same? I mean, is it still lemon chicken and, and honey, honey soy prawns or, or has it developed and, and changed over that period? It really depends where you go. So, um, there's a restaurant that we went to in Mori called New Bowa. And the thing with that restaurant is that the menu hasn't changed since the 70s. So when we were there, we had um, a table of people in the 80s and 90s gathering for their regular birthday meals. Um, 
every year they've been coming there for the last 40 years when someone ha has a birthday. And so they were eating food with a knife and fork um, that they've been eating since 40 years ago. But the restaurants that are changing with the times and with um, people's palates, you know, I know in the cities of Sydney and Melbourne, Queensland, Darwin, there's just been a lot of changes in the types of Chinese food that are available now that wouldn't have been available when you guys were eating in country towns in the 70s and 80s, you know, like in Sydney and Melbourne, there's heaps of food that you can get, Shanghainese food, um, Yunnan food, not just food that's um, Cantonese food, which is traditionally what these restaurants are serving. So the restaurant that we went to in Malua Bay, um, they do an amazing honey prawn. Um, but the special thing about their honey prawn is that they use local honey from the nearby town of Mogo, which you might remember was in the bushfires um, last year. You know, so they've got dishes like deep fried eggplant, which wouldn't have existed back in the 70s because people weren't eating eggplant. So no. um, the chef... Um, Raymond, he's, um, you know, like a traditionally trained Cantonese chef, duck on the menu sometimes. You know, if you show up with a lobster that you've caught, he'll he'll cook it up for you. So there's that sense of this could be a kitchen that's in Sydney or Melbourne. It's very with the times. But then in the country towns, I think people don't want it to change. There was one family who we met in Atherton Tablelands, um, Tina and Andy, and they said that they've been trying to introduce some new dishes because they're from China. They came here about um, seven years ago. And so a lot of the food to them when they arrived was completely foreign. They'd never seen lemon chicken before. They did not know this sweet and sour pork. And so they're trying to introduce things on their menu like um, salted egg yolk deep fried prawn, which is like a real delicacy. And the people are like, even when they're getting it for free, they're like, I really like the old menu. So for people, it's different. You know, you can go for nostalgic reasons or you can go to challenge your palate, but they're probably two different types of things that people are going for. And some of these restaurants offer nostalgia. You know, mm. eating a deep fried ice cream for me was like time travel. I hadn't had mm. one since I was eight years old. And um, it's that kind of wonder that is captured by, um, by visiting these restaurants. And I think a lot of people are pretty keen to go and discover that again when borders opens. Mm. It's such a happy thing to eat something that you loved when you were little. Yes, and that episode with the deep fried ice cream, it comes with an actual demonstration of how they cook deep fried ice cream, which I was fascinated by because my entire life I've been going, how? How do they have ice cream in the deep fryer and it doesn't just, yes. it's yeah. just amazing it's like to me. and hot. <laughs> Yeah. It's like a miracle of chemistry. And you've actually then also answered my question that I've long <laughs> since had, um, Jen, which is the Chinese, what we identify as Chinese food here in Australia is probably not what Chinese food is. Would that be true? I think it's really um, appropriate to call it um, Australian Chinese food. So, um, you know, it's, it's a type of food that exists very much in Australia is a little sweeter than Cantonese food usually would be. There's so there's a bit of a fun deep fried and battered foods, which are not the foods that um, I would have eaten at home growing up. So I think it's fair to say that this is a distinct category. It's 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 Australian food. Mm. You're not going to go to China to order lemon chicken, basically. Right. Like people that come dined at the restaurant in Moree have come back from travelling to Beijing and... Um, and Shanghai and said the food here is much better like the food at Moree is much better <laughs> to grow up with um so yeah I mean that that makes me wonder who then back in the 60s or 70s was the first to start cooking that food that became universally in Australia Chinese food because if it's not come a from China <laughs> a genius <laughs> Um, so, Jen, to get away from your amazing show, I see that you are hosting a live comedy show, which we're in Melbourne. So um, the idea of there being a big event in which people can gather and see live <laughs> entertainment is blowing my mind. Uh, this I is happening know, in right? Adelaide. You're this in Sydney. How is Adelaide. this going to happen? 
I'm going to quarantine for two weeks in order to do the show. Um, and so the lineup that you see there is mostly um, made up of people from Melbourne and Sydney. And um, unfortunately, they're not going to be able to be at the show because of border restrictions. Oh. So we've actually reassembled um, a local team of comics and sketch performers and um, musical comedy people and also um, Dil Rook from Melbourne, Dil Rook Jaya Sinha. Jaya Sinha will also be there from Melbourne. And um, it's just going to be a real laugh because um, we've got a live band to play as well so people can enjoy live music and comedy at the same time. So it's a little bit different to your regular um, it's part of the Oz Asia Festival, so there's heaps of stuff that's actually going to be on in Adelaide, which just makes all the other states so jealous. Um, but it's, as you say, it's really, um, it's been so long between gigs just because of um, the fact that, you know, people haven't been able to gather. So we're really, really excited to be able to bring um, a live and a live show to Adelaide. That's awesome. So it's going to be fantastic. I'm so envious and also I'm absolutely starving now. <laughs> is it too early? Is it too early? I'm feeling some... Zoe. <laughs> I mean, honestly, is it so too early for some lemon We have to actually, we do have to ask the question, though, before we let you go, Jen. Zoe, are you are you chopsticks or fork? Chopsticks. 100% chopsticks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I feel I feel shamed now. I can use chopsticks. There is no shame. Well, there is no shame. You know what? I think we should all use spoons, Frank. Like, it's just the easiest way to get food from the bowl to your mouth. It's whatever works. That, well, that's it. I mean, right. I, can, I can use chopsticks. It just takes too long. And I like to eat as fast as I can to shovel it in and be as full as I possibly can. Right, and so well, I you find... know, Joe, that in in Thailand people don't usually use chopsticks, and because I lived in uh, Cambodia and Thailand for five years, the me method of eating is fork and spoon. Mm -hmm. So that 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 is a much easier combination, and certainly yeah. if we have Southeast Asian food, mm. that's what we'd be using. I support that. Yeah. If I could, I would hold the bowl to my mouth and just shovel it in that way. Oh, but you do know that um, the way that Chinese food eat rice is you do hold the bowl to your mouth. So no one's <laughs> expecting you to use chopsticks to eat rice. So you bring the bowl to your mouth and you use the chopsticks to just spoon it in, if you will. Scoop it in, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Scoop it in. <laughs> it's a new method of eating, Joe's discovered. Scoop it in. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Um, Jen, it's just been a delight to chat with you and thanks for your show. I really do. It's just, um, it's been a joy for me to discover parts of Australia and those beautiful country towns and the people in them. And yeah, I'm getting Chinese food for dinner for sure. Amazing. Don't forget to put the rice on. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> thanks, Zoe. <laughs> thanks, Jen. <laughs> oh, jeez. Zoe, what a fun show. Super fun show. Oh, um, so before... good. And I, I actually am legitimately hungry. <laughs> I'm going to have to go and find some dumplings. <laughs> oh, what's your, what's your dumpling of choice? Oh, I don't know. Just like a steamed pork and leek, something mm. like that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I, like... I mean, I'd eat a wide variety of dumplings, quite frankly. If someone put a plate in front of me, I would eat them. Wouldn't really yeah. matter what, yeah. what type. Oh, well, I think, I think dumplings and only dumplings is a legitimate meal as well. If that's all you want to do, mm -hmm. I totally support that. I've done that before. Just give me, I'll have steamed and fried. How about that? <laughs> right -o. We'll support I, that. Yeah. I want to say thank you to you also, Zoe, before we finish the show today, for your beautiful photos on Instagram. I'm living for your just photography of our of the bay in Melbourne. God, uh, I just... I, I love taking photos and obviously, you know, being a broadcast journalist for a long time, so I've always taken a lot of photos in the course of my work. But these are just my snaps that I take when I go out running most days along the bay and I, I do feel very lucky to have that horizon mm. uh, within my few kilometres that I'm able to access. It, it does make a difference to be able to look out into infinity. 
Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I know that there are people who haven't had the bay or the sea or a beach of any kind within their 5, 10 or 15 Ks, whatever we're, restriction we're on at the moment. Um, and those mm. photos have been really, really lovely. It kind of just, there's something about looking at that blue sky, the water, and yeah, as you say, the horizon that kind of calms you a little. Yeah, and you're right. A lot of people don't have access to be able to see that. I think a lot of people, though, have been going out and, finding the nice bits of their local suburbs. And that has been one upside of the various lockdowns that people have done a lot of exploring. But certainly where I live in Bayside, Melbourne, I'm very blessed to be able to see that um, when I walk down to the water. And you know, today, Joe, it's kind of like hurricane conditions outside, <laughs> but, but, but even that has its appeal. That bay, it's different every day. Mm. It, the seasons change, the days change, the mornings, the evenings. It, it, it just is different. Every time you go there, you get something more, something different from it. It's true. I saw dolphins in the bay the other day. Like literally yeah. in, like suburb, like, you know, inner city Melbourne, there were dolphins frolicking. Beautiful. Ah, oh, mm. lifts your soul. So thank you so much for uh, joining me this week and we'll have you again soon on Broad Radio. Nice to see you always. Yeah, we'll see you on Broad Radio next time. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.